Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Martin Industries. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L dot com. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Good ideas have a way of resurfacing, even if they don't gain traction the first time around. Such is the case with the subject of this week's podcast. Here's Frank Lester, editor of No-Till Farmer, to explain. Today in this series, we're taking a look at an innovative idea that might help you make better use of available sunlight when it comes to protecting your soils and pushing up your no-till yields. This concept is highlighted in a talk that retired John Deere engineer Bob Recker presented at last winter's National No-Tillage Conference. Listening to Bob's presentation, you will learn how turning off every other roll on his no-till planter and doubling the per-roll plant populations let him plant corn in 60-inch wide rolls. Yes, 60-inch rolls, which leaves space for seeding cover crops, growing companion crops, grazing livestock, and making use of high-rise equipment in, be in between those extra wide corn rolls. Discovered by accident, Bob has evaluated his unique cropping idea on a number of Midwestern farms over the past several years. And when we take a break in the middle of Bob's presentation, I'll share some historical insights on a somewhat similar extra-wide roll idea that was tried by a few Midwestern farmers more than 65 years ago. Let's listen as Waterloo, Iowa farm consultant Bob Recker shares his wide roll system that can help no-tillers build soil health and take advantage of increased sunlight without reducing corn yields. April 14th of 2000, what may be the understatement of the century, came from space uh, on a trip to the moon. And uh, as replayed in the movie Apollo 13 and all of that. We're all on this little spaceship together and you all have a little problem. Uh, year in and year out, you have economics problems. You need to make a buck, you need to, need to get through. Uh, you also have some environmental issues or environmental needs. You'd like to leave the soil in better shape or your farm in better shape for the next generation where you're so fortunate to have those. And then there's a little deal about water that you're sharing with your neighbor that's just a pass through. You get to keep the soil if you can hang on to it. And I know this group will do that. But the water is just a pass-through, and there's folks looking at the water, and they're looking at you, so uh, I can't think of a better group to be taking care of our water today than you all. And then there's the little detail of uh, growing population. And what I just described earlier is what I call the triple bottom line. You got to make money, you want to take care of the soil, and you got to grow food. The bottom line is you can dedicate half of your corn growing space to improving your triple bottom line with little impact, with an asterisk, on farm corn yield. But we're gonna talk about uh, how we might do that and how we can put some specifics into that data. Uh, gonna go back a ways, a couple quotes. I wanna acknowledge my dad. And one of the things I heard a lot as a child is you can't learn any younger. Now, today we would call that child abuse. 
I called it growing up on a farm and I wouldn't trade it for the world. And it was a unique experience. I ran through my first fence at age five. It wasn't the last fence I ran through. And in fact, given my interest in automation, it, I may still not have gone through my last fence. So stay tuned on that one. Uh, go forward about 30, 35 years or so, you'll see a uh, kind of an interesting looking toy there that represents what we were trying to do in the late 80s. And it was merging two cultures, a German engineering culture and a American engineering culture to create a product. Hopefully, at least half of you guys are running around with the descendants of this product. But the guy I worked for at that time gave me lots of help and lots of advice, but one of his favorite expressions was help is determined by the recipient. And at the time I thought he was talking about how I was supposed to help the other folks. I think what he really meant is I wasn't necessarily listening to what he was giving me for help. So I use that expression quite a bit. A few years later, I was uh, pitching a computer project to a accountant turned general manager in a factory. And he pulls out this dollar bill and he says, Bob, he says, in God we trust. Everybody else brings data. So he didn't want to hear about, you know, little trivial stories and all that sort of stuff. He wanted to see numbers. And uh, nothing worse than trying to get numbers past an accountant. So last quote. Uh, and this slide kind of summarizes all the things I'm not going to talk about tonight. In the lower right is what matters to you all. What did I put in the wagon? What did I take to town? Am I covering my costs? Am I making money? Uh, the rest of the graphics there are the various ways I go about collecting data. Uh, I'm a fanatic on data. I'm a fanatic on high resolution data. I don't particularly believe yield monitor uh, data. It's a great picture. It's great for relative information. But I know that if I say to you guys, this is quarter mile data and it's an away wagon, you're pretty much going to buy it. Now, the university types, like the good Dr. Shear, who's up next, want to see lots of replicated trials and little things and all that. But as I'll explain in a minute, that isn't necessarily my thing, uh, but I'm interested in auguring in. Uh, one of my heroes is the gal that was on uh, NCIS with the pigtails, uh, Abby, yeah. And Abby would just, she'd take the mundane thing and dig into it. And the, the top center picture there is probably the ultimate for me where I took a, a time-lapse camera, put it on bare ground when the corn was planted, and left the camera there until we handpicked the corn harvest. So I had a series of pictures taken every 30 minutes during the daylight hours for the season. And it, at that point, it was about emergence, and that became a, uh, an interesting part of that. The reason there's a quote here is my good friend Lauren, uh, established a Facebook group a few years ago, invited me to be involved in it. Most of you know that when you make a statement on social media, you'll get two or three good responses, and about the fourth reply down, the flaming starts. And, uh, and, and, but this group is really professional, doesn't, doesn't have that problem, but I think I had said something, or somebody was commenting, or somebody was weighing in, with, well, we tried that 40 years ago or whatever. And one of my customers, a person who is a very few words and not real active on the social media side, 
Uh, some of you may know him, his name is Ben Fail. He says, look, Bob's got data. And I took that as a huge compliment because ultimately, uh, and in the world of agriculture, and, and, and it's the engineer in me, uh, I'm gonna offend everybody here that has a, an agronomy or life sciences degree, but I feel like agronomists are victims because they're recording what's going on, they're recording weather, they're looking at soil conditions and all of that. As an engineer, I'd get up in the morning, I'd say, well, okay, I, I got the laws of physics I can work with, and here's something, and we're gonna make it better. So that's, that's where I get my data fanaticism. So what I wanna do today is share with you how we got the number that I'm gonna give you. And you're gonna walk out of here with one number for 60 inch rows. And uh, you can believe it or not believe it, but I'm gonna share with you how we got there. Uh, but I have to set a little bit of context, and that's, that's called R&D, research and development. And so think if you would, uh, any of the equipment companies that are out uh, in the lobby and, and here, uh, they can correct me if I want, but in a large corporation that will go unnamed, they had a rule that said 4% of sales would go to R&D. Not 4% of profit, but 4% of sales. And that was generally broken into three categories. Continuous improvement, where you fix stuff and new programs, which is the next big thing, and then advanced engineering. Current product continuous improvement. So fix stuff, uh, cost reduction, every engineer loves to do cost reduction, marketing support. New product programs is where the bulk of the engineering and R&D dollars is spent, I would say, in almost every manufacturing concern. Uh, it's where you build a bunch of machines the hard way, one at a time. You put them out in the field, you run thousands of hours, uh, you do a bunch of lab tests. It's where the factories get built, where you do a lot of capital improvement and all of that. And if you screw it up, you're betting the company. It's just really important that you don't have surprises in new product programs. And those of you who may have driven the green know that mostly they got it pretty much right. And then there's advanced engineering. The rule, and, and it took me 35 years in Deere to get to the right job, and it was when I was involved in the advanced, the advanced engineering work, and we came up with a rule that said we wanted 10% of the R&D, or 10% of the 4%. And our metric was different. We weren't interested in proving reliability or anything. We would cobble together things. It was ideas, it was concepts, but usually it went beyond paper. Usually it culminated in some meeting in a desert someplace, uh, fly in the corporate plane, and the goal was to demonstrate to management that you had an idea that might be worthwhile. So let's take that now and put it into your farming operation. So you do a little R&D every day. Uh, you're, you're, you're finding and fixing problems, you're doing, you're doing uh, imagery type things, whether it's satellite, airplane, uh, drone, whatever, you're out scouting, cost reduction. Uh, you do your cost reduction by talking about what's going on, what people are doing, how can I benchmark myself, and, and all that sort of stuff. The new farming practices, that's where you decide to go buy equipment. You're trying some different products, you're thinking about different treatments, you may do some strip trials. This is the world where the universities are doing replicated trials. The seed corn companies, replicated trials, you got lots of data. You're usually looking for a fairly small improvement and often it takes a lot of statistics 
to find and have confidence that you got a small improvement. And it's where you spend your capital dollars. And for that reason, you want to be careful. So you're pretty, you know, you got a few relationships, whether it's with your, your advising crew or your accountant or whatever, uh, but you're careful. On the advanced side, I'm suggesting you take 10% of 4% of your land and look at crazy ideas, look at extreme concepts. Uh, the picture you see there was my, one of my first uh, advanced experiments, if you will. And you learn more, I think most of you would say this, you learn more when things don't go well. You learn more when you make a mistake. You certainly remember it better and, and you get a legend you can talk about, but you also get to tolerate failure. So if you look at your farm, so for every thousand acres you have, I'm suggesting, and, and I've played this in a previous presentation, and a couple guys came up and says, you know, we never really looked at it that way, so that's why you're getting this load dumped on you. So for every thousand acres, you're doing continuous improvement every day. You're out there checking things, making sure you're doing right and all that on 960 acres. My suggestion is when you're thinking about doing something different, whether it's a different planter, setup, strip till, no-till, whatever, do it on 40 acres. That's big enough that it matters. It's big enough that you get away from the, the nuances and all of that. But then in that 40 acres, take four acres out the backside of the farm, out behind the hill, out where nobody sees it, and just do something crazy. Just do something that, that you're not sure uh, how it's going to turn out, but, but what the heck. And so that's the context in which I'm giving you this information today. What you're getting is the results of a one-off, if you will, one-off concept that we looked at that says, what would this do for people's income? What's it do for the soil? And what's it do for total output of the farm? So all of that, all of that verbiage there was about... Uh, about what we, what we want you to walk away from here. And one of the things I'd like you to go home with is the idea that, hey, maybe I'm gonna do a little bit of that myself. Uh, so let's talk about sunlight. Uh, back in 2004, I was still with Indeer, I was in the advanced group, and there was this crazy guy that was doing strip intercropping. And I hadn't been back on the, I hadn't been involved in, in growing crops for, at that point, 30 some years. But he had this crazy idea. And for me as an engineer, it was crazy because he wanted to run 120 inch singles. And in those days, 120 inch singles meant that you replaced MFWD knuckles a lot. Some of you may have done that. And eventually it got addressed on the engineering side with ILS and all that sort of thing. But I was convinced that because he had singles, he was gonna have terrible compaction, terrible results in the center of these strips both the corn and the beans. So I borrowed a combine, got, got uh, the local seed dealer to come over with his way wagon, took some measurements. Well, wasn't quite what I thought. In fact, I uh, did that over several years and consistently the edges of these strips was just really good yield with nothing fancy on variety, fertility, population, any of that. So several years later, my brother let me throw together a little planter and we did some six row strips. Because when I was getting data, it was amazing. It was only the outside row or two that seemed to have the really good yield. So like all these center rows are like wasted. 
So I said, well, let's do some 66-row stuff, 15 feet. And we did that, and, and this, my brother, full disclosure, is a Pioneer seed dealer, so he was having me be a little more formal about it than just cobbling something. But, uh, but we did replicated trials, and yep, yep, it worked. Uh, and then another friend of mine, who had 20-inch corn, did some strip intercropping, and uh, I'm sure you can't read the numbers, but this is a 12-row strip. The overall yield on that strip was 275. But those edges you see there are like 447, actually 437 on one side. So it's well over 400 bushel. Well, this, this is pretty good, you know. But then you look at the graphic and you say, why waste all that space in the center? Why not just have more edges? So Bob says, well, and I had another engineer friend that owned some farmland, and he, he let me come on his farm, gave me some junk ground. And I didn't understand what junk ground was until I had a couple of years of trying to grow corn on this. But I says, well, okay, I think, I think if we can just do edges and do really well, the edges will pay for everything else. I only have to put half the ground in, into a crop and, and it'll pay for itself. Seemed like a good idea at the time, but it was a humbling experience, uh, to say the least, and it caused me to hold you guys in extremely high uh, awe, I guess is the best word. I couldn't stay out of the weeds. I couldn't manage the, the, the fertility and the chemistry. Uh, my equipment didn't, wasn't the right size. It was just a disaster. So I decided I really didn't want to be in the corn growing process. But in the process, again, through the group that, that Lauren started, I became familiar with some growers, large growers in our area, and they became familiar with me. And, and we developed a relationship over several years. And so we have this little deal, and, I, and he says, well, and I had done a couple things with him, and he says, if you want some ground, I'll just let you have some ground. So I made him a promise. I says, I won't take more than one minute of your planting season if you give me 200 rows of corn. And further, I won't take more than one minute of your harvest season. And this guy has thousands of acres to cover, and that worked, and, and we've done that. So, so I've been on his property for several years, and it's my playground. And it's great because he owns the land, he takes care of the fertility, uh, he's a strip tiller, he's a scorched earth guy, so brace yourself, you're gonna see some really bad pictures from the context of this group. But uh, it worked. We had, we had some fun. We'll rejoin Bob in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer, Influencers, and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment across the U.S. and Canada. Known for Martin-Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. Before we get back to the conversation, Frank is going to share some historical insights on the concept of wide row corn. A few weeks ago, Jerry Dunville of Slaughter's Kentucky was doing some spring cleaning. The no-till farmer reader came across a copy of the February 1952 issue of Farm Journal. 
Having read an item we had published a few months earlier on growing corn in 60-inch rows, he sent the issue along to me and had marked an article in the issue with the headline, A New Way to Grow Corn. The article featured a field-sized experiment carried out at Funk Farms in McLean County, Illinois in the early 1950s. The farm family found corn planted in 60-inch wide rows yielded the same as corn grown in 40-inch rows. They even interseeded cover crops between the extra wide rows after the last cultivation to protect the soil against beating rains and spring thaws ahead of the next growing season. Even if the idea of planting corn in extra wide rows has been around for many years, Bob Recker's modern day system takes a much closer look at the benefits. And now back to Bob's presentation. This was a 2016 plot. And the question on the left there was, how much sunlight does the corn want? And I had already concluded that all that God meant for corn strips to be four rows wide, four 30 inch rows. So I had repeated strips of four row corn. And then if you look at the graphic, I had zero, one, two, three, four, five, and six rows open in that, in that pass there. And, uh, and the gray there is what I lovingly refer to as scorched earth. This guy is so good with weeds, there wasn't a weed in that thing. And this is a half mile long field, so I had an opening in the middle. Um, but it was, uh, it, was, it was pretty interesting. And so that's the sort of thing that I've, that I've done. Now, I just threw out a couple of yield numbers. And some of you probably remember, I just said 447 bushels, right? And this is, a, this is the place where I have to borrow another quote from a friend, and that is, First liar doesn't have a chance. So when I plant corn, I'm punching in a population in my nice little monitor. I put the population per row. When I harvest the corn, I go down the field with my little combine one row at a time and weigh that. So I think and talk and, and integrate row yield. So in uh, 2017, I was pretty sure that God's answer was four rows with a skipped row on either side. Because the previous year, what I learned was that anything more than one row of sunlight was wasting sunlight. And that was kind of an epiphany for me. Just like, whoa, you know, this stuff doesn't have to be real wide. We can, we can just have really high productive strips of corn and a little bit of opening. And this actually looks like a tram line, right? For the folks that have uh, sprayers that can run a 120-inch tread, this this is how you would how you'd spray this. So in this particular trial here, these are again way wagon data, half mile long. Excuse me, in this case quarter mile long rows. The the row yield next to one row of opening was 360 bushel on your right and 348 on your left. That's pretty good. And, and at this point, I am pushing the population. So I run like, in this case, 55,000 per row in the outer row, 45 in the second, and then 32 usually in the center, or whatever the growers, whatever the growers doing. Except in this case, there is no center. Every row is either an outside row or next to an outside row. So the big deal is let's just harvest all the sunlight we can. But in the center, you go in just one row and that you lose 100 bushels. You're like, whoa, man, you know? So if I look at the strip yield, 
Instead of throwing around numbers like 348, the strip yielded 298. So, okay, that's what the, that's what the corn strip yielded. But then my grower friend says, well, wait a minute, Bob. You got every, every four rows, you're skipping a row. So now I got to take that 298 bushels down to 238 because one out of every five rows is a zero yield. Now what's interesting is that 238 bushels happened to be the same as what his field was yielding in that area in that season. So what that said is, okay, we can have the opening and it's break even. Kind of like, I don't know. So then in early 2017, on a dare, a good friend of mine who's pretty candid, the guy that had loaned me this land earlier, he says, Bob, if you think you're so smart, why don't we plant corn in 40-inch rows? You know, we used to do that. Everybody, you know, moves smaller and everybody talks about going narrower. And so in the context of advanced practices, I give myself permission to do stupid stuff, okay? So in my plot in 2017, I had a bunch of things going on. You see some little blocks in the, in the back there where I did some goofy stuff. And, but you see uh, uh, in the center of the plot there, you see some rows of pretty narrow strips. Those are single 60-inch rows. And I was pretty sure it was going to be a disaster. Uh, now, the nice people at Beck's gave me some, some seed corn. I talked to them about it. They kind of looked at me like, yeah, what have you been smoking, you know, and all that. So, um, so this is what the plot, and then I have little field days. So my, my, my clientele and my, my network through Lauren and, and others, uh, if, if we have something to talk about and something to show, we'll sh I'll have like 10 different experiments going on in this 20 acre patch. So it's kind of like a really low budget version of Dr. Shear's Ohio Farm Science Days. Really low budget. Uh, so, so this is what we had. And, and the only numbers, I'm not gonna torture you with numbers here, but the baseline yield, the growers, uh, I, I always take four or eight of his rows as one of the baselines because I want to prove to myself and to him that I can plant corn as good as him. And it took me a lot of years and a lot of dollars to get to that point, but consistently now I can, I can go out in a grower's field and do as good as him. And that didn't come easy. But so his field was 230 bushels. In this particular year, that's what that, and that was, and he's a good grower. It wasn't the best, best of land, it was pretty good. So, and then there was a bunch of other experiments, but you see a set of numbers there on the right, and that's what single pass of one 60-inch row uh, across the half a quarter mile field yielded. So this is field link data. Now, in university, I, it, it, I have, on a contract basis, I've planted some plots for people and they go 50 feet and got 80 seeds. It's like, oh my God, you know. But that's what I call university research. My replications is I got 1,320 feet of replications. But realistically, it's only one. So the different varieties there are the, are the numbers. Uh, I had a couple of different populations and I really didn't pay much attention to it because I was convinced it was just gonna be a dumb idea, but something I did just to humor a friend. But the bottom line on that is the 60-inch rows average 218 bushels 
versus 230. So that was 95% of, uh, of what the original yield was. So it wasn't the same, but it was fairly consistent. If you look at those numbers, yeah, there's some variety differences and all that, but they're pretty consistent. The conventional wisdom was that it would have been half. Part of what I do is in my, in my sunshine harvesting work, I push the population. So we had the same population in these 60 inch rows as the field would have. So the row had, in this case, 64,000, so that the field had 32,000. I'm not trying to do a smoke and mirrors here thing, but, but it's really important uh, to understand that because that row that's got the extra sunlight can tolerate a lot more population than most anybody would be willing to, anybody in the right mind would be willing to plant corn at. So here's an aerial view uh, from a drone of, uh, of the four row strips and then the 60 inch strips. And so you can see the ground, you know? Well, it's not good, you're wasting sunlight. You know, Bob, you're supposed to be the sunlight guy. What, what's going on here? You know, that's, that's not good. So I just happened to have a time-lapse camera in the field. It wasn't even on a 60-inch roll because I knew they were gonna be a train wreck and we weren't gonna mess with them. So kind of by accident, in the middle of the winter, kind of about now, sitting here looking at all these pictures, I said, hey, wait a minute. I finally understand why a 60-inch roll should do well. And again, as the engineer, when I see something happening, the, this is the uh, Peggy, what's the thing, the, the gal's name? Abby, what the Abby approach is. I gotta figure out what's going on here. I need to understand, I need a model. So if you look at the lower right of the screen, that's four o'clock in the morning on the 1st of July, okay? And the, these are north-south rows. And on the left is a 30-inch opening, and on the right is a 60-inch opening. And this could get really boring, folks, so I'll try to go fast. Uh, and I basically just look at four leaves. There's four leaves out there that are, that are solar collectors. And so now let's just start to move through the day. 5.30, it's daylight. 6 o'clock, a little hazy. At 7.30, the leaves on the, op on the row across from the opening, the open row, are starting to get a lot of sunlight. But you notice it's still, it's daylight, but it's not sunlight shining down in the row. So on the, on the dark side of the row, you're not getting a lot of sunlight. So now we keep rolling, the sun goes up, it's nine o'clock in the morning. Okay, here we are, let's go back to 9.30. So at 9.30 in the morning, on the 1st of July, this, is, this was good corn. So the corn's like shoulder high, but the whole plant is getting bathed in sunlight. So all those leaves are just hard at work, okay? Now, if you look at the other two instances, the west side of the, of the row on that left side, it's not getting a lot of sunlight. It's getting some flickering. And you further look within the row and you're not getting the sunlight. So, okay, so now that row on the west side has got all this nice sunlight and it stays nice sunlight, got a little bit of haze there midday. And it's not till about 12 o'clock or 12.30 it loses any sunlight. So it went from 9.30 to 12.30, just bathed in sunlight. So this is sunburn time. Uh, but now you go to about 12.30 and you'll notice on the left side, 
the, of the opening, these leaves are now getting a whole bunch of sunlight and it gets dark over there on the right-hand side. So, okay, so now this, this row is doing really well. It's getting a bunch of sunlight and it's still dark in the middle of that 30-inch row. So there's not, you know, the, and I'm not dinging anybody that loves 20-inch corn, but, but people are so proud of how quickly it canopies. My statement is, okay, after it's canopied the ground, about three days later, it's canopied all the leaves under it. So you're just not getting a lot of sunlight down in there. And then, and then you all who know biology a lot better than me know that there's also an air nitrogen exchange going on there too. Uh, that, that the openness probably creates more air currents and all that sort of stuff. And you've all been in the middle of a cornfield in late August and it's not a fun place to be. So, okay, then you get down to the late afternoon and so it's not till about four o'clock that the right-hand side of this row starts to lose sunlight. And then it starts to get dark. And notice how dark it is in the, in the row. And here at seven o'clock in the evening, those upper leaves are still getting sunlight. So, okay, well, that's simple. And then it gets dark. But now you say, wait a minute, Bob. Wait a minute, let's go back here. I hope I don't crash the computer. Let's go back here. And at 12.30, I got a whole bunch of bare ground with the sunlight on it. I got a whole bunch, and this is, this is terrible because you're cooking the water out of it, cooking the moisture out. You're killing all the biology. You're not growing anything except weeds. And if this guy wasn't really good at weed control, he'd have a lot of weeds in there. I know you've all experienced that. So from about 12.30 till about four, four o'clock, there was sunlight shining on that open area. All right? So that's why I'm here today and that's why I'm so excited to hear you all talking about cover crops and other stuff because that is your opportunity space within your cornfields to do something other than grow weeds, okay? So the breakthrough for me was, well, okay, I've got this fancy planter, little four-row fancy planter with electric drives and all that stuff. And, but suddenly, wait a minute, if it's just 60 inch rows, all I gotta do is just turn off every other row. I don't need different populations across the planter. I just crank up the population on all the rows. I don't need, you know, I don't need anything really fancy. I can, you know, this is actually not too hard to do. Uh, one variety, one nutrient treatment, and, and you have access to the field. One of my things that I've always liked about strip intercropping is I tell people I want to give them access to any plant in the field any day of the year. And, and, and I say, and I've told folks, well, th this makes really nice sprayer traffic areas. And then somebody always pipes in, and so I know some of you are thinking, that, yeah, but the guy that's from the co-op that sprays my corn will still find a way to run over corn because that's what they do. But, but anyhow, so this is pretty open. It's not quite as easy as it sounds because the, the, the not easy button part of it is you really need to manage the space in there. You need to do something with it. Um, and uh, so what do you do with that extra sunlight? Well, uh, 
cover crops, we've been talking about that, soil building, been talking about that. To other audiences, those are sometimes new terms. An alternate crop, like maybe hay. Uh, somebody talked about selling wheat straw today, uh, or grazing. So my friend Lauren uh, heard this story in the fall of 2016, yeah, when I was gonna do the 60-inch rows, it says, well, Bob, I've heard your sunlight story a few times, and yeah, you might, he said, but, but I'm gonna do something different. I'm gonna have two rows, because then every row is an edge row. I'm gonna have two rows at 30 inches, and then an opening of 60 inches, right? And, and he took a little tiny, tiny corner of his field, a good corner, good field, and, and just did this. And so I go up there uh, on the 23rd of September and took some pictures. And so on the left is what, he, and, and Lauren is good at cover crops, and he had a mix here. This is what it looked like in the 60-inch opening, and on the right is what it was, same day, one or two rows over what it looked like in the 30-inch opening. And so, and, and then same day, or no, a little later, I had gone in in my little 60-inch rows, because I knew Lauren was doing this stuff. I had a little cedar, a little plot cedar, and I went in and I seeded oats. And my grower is so good at the scorched earth that oats didn't have a prayer. So I couldn't do anything in, in that because, because that was his farming style. That was his farming practice. So I had kind of told this story uh, a couple times that winter, um, and there was one picture, every now and then I'll get a good picture, and, and this particular picture is my Pulitzer Prize picture for fall of 2017. And I was presenting to a small group of growers, and there were people there, you know, okay, Bob's talking and all that. And when this picture came up, they sat up and said, whoa, you know, uh, uh, tell, me, tell me some more about this. What's going on here? And I didn't understand it because I didn't really know the people. And what I realized after talking with them and listening and interacting, they had, they had grazing interest. They wanted to graze their cover crops. And if you're thinking about grazing opportunities, this is pretty good. So I made a presentation at the Practical Farmers of Iowa meeting in Ames last winter. And, and then a really uh, nice guy named Dean Houghton wrote a really well-defined, very nice article. Happened to put it in the John Deere furrow. Sorry, strip deal guys. <laughs> I gotta give somebody else some credit here. But a lot of people read that thing and a lot of people kind of trust it, I think. And so people started calling me. They said, hey, you know what? Uh, this doesn't look that hard. You know, I could do that. And said, okay, well, yeah. I know. Okay, well, I'll send you a spreadsheet. I'll send you a little PowerPoint thing on how to do this. Okay, yep, yep. Well, there's a term there. I'm gonna explain what the term BTN means with a tiny little John Deere story, if you'll tolerate it with me. In the product development cycle for the 8000 series tractor, uh, a young engineer, and this is a true story, a young engineer was trying to figure out how to put a buddy seat in there. John Deere calls it an instructor seat, you call it a buddy seat. And the engineer says, well, I can take the seat that's in the six and seven thousands and I can put it in there and all of that. And he was having a conversation with the marketing guy. And, and the, the, he's now passed away, but a wonderful guy, Oklahoman, beautiful voice. You've heard him in many John Deere commercials. And he says, oh, well, he says, well, I guess we'll call it the BTN seat because it's better than nothing. 
And so, so what, what these are is BTN plots, because they're better than nothing. And all you need to do is go turn off half your rows, make one pass across the field, and when you come back, well then, and then turn them back on, and when you harvest in the fall, tell me how the middle of that one planter pass compared with the baseline. Now, those of you who have agronomy degrees and, and in that stuff know that's a train wreck. It's just a train wreck. But what was interesting, and, and the number keeps growing because I keep hearing about people that kind of got wind of this and, and they're just doing it, you know? And, and so these are, they're right, my current count is 30 folks across the US. I had one in West Virginia and one in Maryland but they didn't, they didn't get it done. That is nine states uh, represented, not replicated. Uh, seven of the guys had cover crops, and that for me was great, because this isn't worth doing if you don't have cover crops, because you're not getting any more corn. If you just wanna grow corn, don't do this. But if you wanna, wanna have a whole bunch better uh, success, I think, with your cover crops, good opportunity. Um, Excuse me, seven did not and five did. So this is just a, a sampling of the guys, uh, Beaver Dam, Wisconsin here, uh, Monticello, Iowa. Good people, is a, one of the guys is getting an award. Out of, the information I like the best is when they take their little camera, take a picture of the sheet that the guy with the, their seed dealer with the way wagon had. The sweet spot in this whole deal is grazing. Grazing, grazing, grazing. And animals are one of the reasons I went to Iowa State University to be an engineer. But one guy, when I get out of my group, I managed to get one guy who happened to have a picture of his cows out grazing. Um, and then I started noticing cattle. I had never paid any attention to cattle. And, and where I live is a lot of seed corn. It's kind of in an almost suburban environment and all of that. Um, so the answer is, the answer is 5%. 5% of your yield is, field yield is what you give up. I'm almost there. Uh, if you have 60 inch rows versus 30 inch rows, and if you can get the same field population. Now, some of the people that came in on slightly lower yields confessed that their finger pickup planters with mechanical transmissions wouldn't go beyond about 57,000 or so. And so typically it'd be like 34, 68, and, and I, think that, I think that caps it off. Uh, now you can say, okay, Bob, you got, you got uh, 12, looks like 12 uh, responses. There's a whole bunch you didn't get. And, I, and I'm having a video conference here. The tolerance on that 5% number is I think it's 5% plus or minus 10%. So it could be as low as 17% loss or as high as 9% gain. Bottom line, this is your number. You can dedicate half of your corn growing space to improving your triple bottom line by giving up 5% of your corn yield. And that's with no optimization of population, no optimization of variety, and none of the rigor that goes with new practices. Before we wrap up this episode, Frank is going to answer a question that came in from a listener. With today's emphasis on improving soil health, there's been some confusion as to the actual life of our topsoil. 
In a 1970s issue of our No-Till Farmer publication, we published a chart with the headline, What's the Life for Eight Inches of Topsoil? Incidentally, plowing eight inches deep means turning over a thousand tons of soil per acre. Anyway, the chart compared three options under which eight inches of topsoil would be lost or disappear. It would take 36 years with moldboard plowing, 104 years with plowing on the contour where terraces had been built, or it would take 2,224 years for eight inches of topsoil to disappear if no-till was used in contoured fields with terraces. So no-till has always been proven to be beneficial in saving our precious soils. Thank you to Frank Lesseter and Bob Recker for their insights into growing corn in extra wide rows. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll consider joining us for the 28th Annual National No-Tillage Conference next year in St. Louis, Missouri, from January 7th through the 10th. Visit notillconference.com to register. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillpharma.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and the entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm managing editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening. <laughs>